Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. So over the last couple of weeks, I just want to kind of name a few things up front <clears throat> this morning. Uh, two, two Sundays ago, we were with one tax collector, Lord have mercy, and it was, uh, it was one end of the spectrum, so to speak. Last week, we spent some time in the beginning laughing together. Uh, that's the other end of the spectrum. Um, and today, we're going to, with the gospel text that's been given to us for the day, we're going to wade into something that's uh, kind of sensitive. And so I just want to name up front, A, that we're going to wade into something that's a bit sensitive, but as a church too, we want to hold uh, the whole of life together. And so we want to hold joy and sorrow and and laughter and pain. Uh, All these things are part of our experience of life, and God is a part. I love that song that Brian just led us in. Uh, God is a part of all of those things, and and one of the beauties of uh, following Jesus is receiving Jesus in the midst of of that spectrum of human experience. Um, And so this morning, uh, the text that we're going to wade into, I'll I'll describe in a bit, but um, if if you're newer here to Lancaster BIC, uh, you're, you're just forming relationships. Uh, But if you've been here for a while, you will know that uh, over the course of the last maybe 16 months or so, uh, that we've had a lot of losses as as a church family. And so there's been a lot of our our brothers and sisters that that in in my 11 and a half years here, I've done more and and we've hosted and and attended more funerals uh, than than in, not in all my time here, but this has certainly been kind of the most... uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it. There's just been a lot of loss. Um, and so the gospel passage that we're going to look at this morning has to do ultimately with resurrection, uh, but it comes at us in a sideways uh, kind of way. And here's the sensitive part. Um, and I, I do think it's important for us to, to talk and to think about these things. Uh, the gospel passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning has uh, unfortunately caused some confusion particularly for spouses who have lost their spouse. Uh, It's the passage that talks about marriage and heaven um, and makes it sound as if there is no marriage in heaven. Um, So one of the most common questions that comes from this passage um, from folks who have lost uh, their spouses or whether or not they'll still be uh, married in heaven. And so I want to answer this more fully later on, but I want to begin so you're not hanging on on, uh, the last thread to say up front, with a degree of confidence uh, and yet a lot of room for mystery that I believe the covenant of marriage where to become flesh here on earth continues in the age to come. Uh, So I hope it's this time together today around this passage of scripture, again, that ultimately deals with resurrection, but uh, for many of us who are familiar enough with the scriptures to be familiar with uh, this passage of scripture, I hope it's comforting to us in one way. Uh, I also think it speaks to all of us, just this passage in general, it speaks to all of us in terms of how we read the Bible. 
how we read uh, the Bible. Um, and, and, and so whether we've lost someone or not, uh, how we read the Bible is important because as we'll see here this morning, there's this one uh, passage of scripture, one line that has created a lot of turmoil for some folks because it's, it's not been read in the context in which it's given and it's not been read in the context of the whole of scripture. And so as we read the Bible, a couple ways that we read the Bible, I'll give you three ways uh, that we read the Bible. One, we allow the Bible to converse with itself. And so no passage is ever in isolation with, without the, the whole of the story of scripture. Uh, so that's one thing. Now, the second thing is this. Jesus is always central to our reading of Scripture. Jesus is always central to our reading of Scripture. And so the lens through which we read is always going to be in the, in, in through the lens of Jesus. And um, I forget what the third one is, but if I think of it, I'll, I'll give it to you later. Um, I didn't have those three things pointed out in my notes here. It was just three things that quickly came to mind and one escaped. Uh, so... So I want to look at this passage of scripture this morning. Oh, that's the other thing. Context. Context matters. Like how it's written, why it's written, the person who's writing it, the, the way that they're speaking into the situation that they're writing to. Those things matter significantly. So those are the three things. That's the third one. So let's look at this passage from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. This is what it, it, it reads, Luke writes. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her in the same, in, in the same way. I missed the verse here somewhere. Didn't copy and paste. Sorry. And then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. That's kind of the line that is um, troublesome that we'll look at later. And they can no longer die, he continues, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him more questions. So let's look at context for this passage because context matters. Uh, the first thing to notice is this. This is an incredibly intense scene. So this isn't just some obscure, oh, I've got this question and I'm really curious about it, but there is motivation behind this question that is very, very loaded. So if you look at the progression of the passages that Luke writes, um, in uh, a, a chapter two earlier, Luke has Jesus overturning the tables of the temple. Now what's interesting, and again, this is a how we read the Bible kind of thing. In John, in the Gospel of John, this happens right away, straight away in the Gospel of John. 
Jesus is overturning the tables in John chapter 2 after he turns water into wine. And so it seems like, chronologically, that Jesus did this in the beginning of his ministry. Well, and so the two gospels kind of contradict each other because this is, Luke is writing it at the end of Jesus's ministry. One of the things as we look at the gospels, they're not trying to write a linear timeline for everything that happened in Jesus's life. What they're doing is trying to communicate the message of Jesus to a particular crowd and a particular group of people, uh, Luke being the Gentiles. And so uh, Jesus is, or, uh, Luke's placing of Jesus' overturning of the temple is very much in, in line with what he's trying to communicate because as, as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem in the, in the book of Luke, things are getting really, really, really intense. And so he's thrown over these tables, and what the next, the, the next couple chapters have to do, there's these, there's these incidents of, uh, of conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and then, as, as this passage says, with the, the, the uh, Sadducees. Um, so Jesus is teaching in the temple, again, some of the context here. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees start this out. They, uh, they start to debate with Jesus. They start this conflict with Jesus because the way that you kind of engage in conflict or conversation or try to one-up the other in that day and that age is through debate. Uh, That's kind of foreign to us now, but, uh, you know, winning an argument and being able to debate back and forth um, is not, it's kind of a lost art. Uh, Maybe you're taught it in college if you go, that's pretty much the only time I was ever, it was in philosophy class, I think I was taught to engage in the Socratic method of debate or something like that. I don't, I couldn't even tell you what that is, and I'm surprised that I remembered Socratic method. So, um, so the Pharisees begin this debate, and, and they're basically, it's, it's the passage that we might be familiar with, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And so Jesus is like, well, pull out a coin, what's it say, what's on it? And so he says, give to Caesar, what's Caesar, give to God, what's God's? Now, Jesus is in the temple, he's teaching, there's a big crowd around him, uh, and, and the two ruling parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are there. They don't like each other. And so the Sadducees, when they see the Pharisees get stumped, they're like, Oh, this is our moment. If we overcome Jesus, if we, if we stump Jesus here, we not only beat Jesus, but we beat these people that we really hate and disagree with. Their theology is really just messed up. And so uh, if we can, in this context, show them up, we'll show that our theology and the way that we think about things and the way we read things is right. And so this is the context with which this happens. So the Pharisees go first. And then the Sadducees uh, come along. Now, the Sadducees, a couple things to, to note about the, the Sadducees. One, they're, they've been described as cold-hearted elites. Uh, so before the Enlightenment and before modernism and science and rationalism and all those things, uh, there were the Sadducees. They, they didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons, none of that kind of stuff. They were kind of the modernists before the modernists. They were all intellectual all the time. Um, and so they differed then with, with the Pharisees in that they did not believe in angels, demons, resurrection, or any uh, kind of non-physical realm of things. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in those things. And so when they saw that the Pharisees were defeated, they thought, well, we're going to come up with a story that's going to stump Jesus. And so this is the story that they come up with. 
Now, it's in this context. This is why I want to give us context, because uh, we bring our heartfelt questions to this passage of Scripture. And we have to recognize and realize that within this passage of Scripture, this is an incredibly intense environment where they're not asking a genuine question. They're looking to one-up and win, okay? So it's in this that, that the Sadducees present their scenario. Now, the, the scenario itself was preposterous, number one, and it was oppressive. Um, they approached Jesus not with a concern for the widow. They weren't curious like, oh, Jesus, we have this widow that's in our community, and this is what's happened to her. That's not the case at all. What they're doing is really trying to poke fun at the idea of resurrection in general. And so they come up with this preposterous scenario that wouldn't probably ever really happen. And it's meant to poke fun at this idea of resurrection. The, the interesting thing about this is uh, the Leverite marriage, which we, we see in the book of Ruth, this hasn't been practiced for a very long period of time. Uh, it wasn't something, it was still in the law. I'm sure people could apply it and, and follow it if they wanted to. But at the time that, that Luke is writing this, that Jesus is interacting with this, the Leverite marriage is really not very existent within the culture of Israel. And so uh, you, you have this group of people who don't believe in the resurrection, who are asking a resurrection question, which is disingenuous in and of itself. And they don't even practice what they're asking. And so there, there is no pure motive behind this whatsoever. The scenario is oppressive. And it's, and it's also probably good to point out just the oppressive nature of it for the woman herself. Even though the woman is fictitious, it, it is oppressive toward women in general. Um, this woman goes through seven husbands without bearing a child, all of these things. In other words, it, reading between the lines, we would say that she has no identity whatsoever. She's been with seven husbands, all related or within the family, so to speak, but she has no children. And those two things are identity markers for the culture of the time. So all of this context is important to us because uh, the remarks of Jesus here are not, are not addressing a question that comes from a grieving spouse, okay? So we derive an answer from a question that is not even being asked. The scenario, rather, is put forth in an insincere way with impure motives on behalf of this party of the Sadducees. So remember, this passage then does not have to do with um, if we'll still be married in heaven. This passage has to do with resurrection. And so this is how Jesus responds in verse 34 and following. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. So let's explore these few lines because Jesus is saying something here. We want to pay attention to what Jesus is saying and also clarify what he is not saying. The most confounding line in the question of, of those who have lost spouses is the one that says this, in this age people marry and are given in marriage, but in the next age they will neither be married nor be given in marriage. So what is Jesus saying? This age is the earthly age. This is the one that you and I live in. They're marked, this age is marked by this particular body, which all of us have, 
and which are growing older by the second. Not to be morbid, but we're, I'm now older and older and older, and so are you. Uh, I don't know how many, you know, the interesting thing about how many skin sh cells you shed or whatever, I've probably shed a million by now in the last five minutes. But we're growing older, we're in the, this age, we're in decaying bodies. And these bodies eventually, and, and I think this is actually important for the church to talk about because we don't talk about death very much. But the church actually gives a framework with which to understand death, not to be afraid of death. It's not just at funerals that we want to talk about death, but we are all mortal, friends. There is none of us here who's going to avoid death and dying. And so these are the bodies that we inhabit and we all experience death. We think of this uh, less so today, but in this, this scenario of the woman, um, it, it's... It's a resurrection scenario in and of itself because in the Old Testament, the way, um, the way that people think about prolonging their life, because I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Old Testament, there, there is no concept of heaven or hell or the afterlife. Those things are developed later in time in the intertestamental period of the scriptures. Okay, so again, as we read the Bible, this thing is a progression. It's not just a... Um, a Everything that we know, as enlightened as we are, which we're really not that enlightened, um, isn't front-end loaded at the beginning of Scripture. It, it works as a progression. And we want to treat the, uh, the Scripture as working in a progression. And so one of the ways that, that the people understood that they're going to continue their family line, they're going to continue to live after they die, is through children. And so this is one of the reasons why children, uh, you know, the story of Abraham and Sarah, all the barrenness that takes place in, in, in some of the characters in the Old Testament, which is also something that's hard for us to deal with. Um, this is why it's so important to these families is because if they don't live on, they literally don't live on. And so it's almost kind of like this resurrection uh, sort of feel to, to being able to have children and to prolong your family lineage. This is why it's important to read the genealogies because they're meant for a purpose. Uh, it's meant to say that this is continuing, this is continuing, this is continuing. This is why Jesus comes from the line of, of David. There's, there's uh, just this sense of that life, the coming of life overcomes death. So when Jesus says that in the age to come, in the age of the heaven and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be uh, people no longer marry or be given in marriage. He's not making a statement about marriage in this life. He's making a statement about marriage in the next life. Because in the next life, there is no need to marry, which is the role of the husband. So if there's no marriage in heaven or no one will be given in marriage, that means there is there will be no ceremonies for husbands, no ceremonies for wives, because the resurrection happened. There won't be the need to continue on your family line, which is what traditionally happens throughout the scripture. You won't need to do that because you will have eternal life. Does that make sense? Right? And so this is, again, resurrection kinds of language. So no longer marrying or be given in marriage more or less speaks to the need not to marry newly, in the new heavens and the new earth because it's not necessary. It's not necessary to continue life because you are in eternal life. You are going to be experiencing eternal life. 
And so Jesus goes on to say then in verse 37 and 38, and this is kind of what confronts then the Sadducees in their argument. He says, but in the account of the burning bush, which might seem obscure, but remember, Jesus is a person of the scriptures. Uh, he's reading back through the lens of scriptures, and he's making the scriptures alive in a new way. When Moses is saying <clears throat> what Jesus is saying he's saying here, which Moses did say, when Moses said this, there, there was no sense of, of him knowing the significance of what he's saying. Rather, Jesus is, is kind of doing what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You heard it said, now let me say to you, let me interpret this for you. And so he goes back and pulls on Moses, which is important for the Sadducees because they only believe in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They don't, they don't believe in the prophets, the kings, any of those, that end of scripture. And so he goes back and reaches back into the Torah and he says, Moses showed that the dead rise for, and again, it seems so obscure, right? But it points to something for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. And this is what shuts down the conversation. That's what ama amazes everybody. Uh, Jesus refers back to that because of what the Sadducees kind of need to hear, how, how uh, the, the argument through which they need to hear through those first five books of the Bible. And even though Moses didn't know what he was saying, Jesus is saying, look, this has been part, this is like this subplot of the storyline all along, and he's bringing those things to the surface. It's also probably not a mistake in, in terms of the way that Luke writes. You're at the end of Jesus's ministry here. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Resurrection is going to be a, a topic of conversation in just a couple chapters, right? And so this uh, conversation of resurrection at this point is... is being used by Luke to point to then what is going to happen with Jesus as, and his resurrection. So this is context of the passage. The, the, the passage itself has to do with resurrection. Like that's, that's, that's what Jesus is getting at here. That was, that, that's what was being challenged uh, in, in terms of how Jesus responds to it. That's what Jesus is bringing about. And so we can, we can say with some sense of clarity, the question that we bring to this passage of scripture about our spouses in heaven is actually not something that this passage of scripture is addressing. Uh, in, in the folks that I, I, I've read throughout this week, you know, uh, there's just, there's so much to say that this isn't about that because Jesus could have been incredibly clear if he wanted to make a statement about that, but he doesn't because he's not addressing that. He's addressing something else entirely. So now that we have a sense of what is and what's not being said uh, in this passage, I, because resurrection is um, it's an, an eternal concept, right? Uh, and so for the last couple of minutes, what I'd like to do is help us think a little bit about the nature of eternal life, because um, you know, again, this is, this is something, uh, how we think about eternity actually does impact and shape our present life. And so whatever it is that you believe about eternity shapes how you will live now. And so if you believe that the earth is going to burn because God's going to destroy it, then, you know, use as much plastic as you want to, <laughs> that kind of thing. It doesn't matter what you do to the earth because your view of eternity shapes how you live now. So what I'd like to do over the next couple minutes is just give you some thoughts about eternity, how I understand eternity from the scriptures, um, and, and, and hopefully helping us 
for those of us who need a reframing or need permission to reframe how, how you've thought about eternity uh, in the past, um, hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, these slides actually come from a, a sermon series I did in 2014 called Rethinking Heaven and Hell. Um, and so I, I just went back and, and pulled some of these things because they were helpful images. So Jeremy, if you want to show the, the, the first one, um, First thing I would like to help us do is to understand the necessary connection between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Now, this slide, if you can, you can see it, there's, there's like a little stick figure that's you on earth. There's cloudy around you, so that means you're angelic, I guess, I don't know. Uh, but the, the way that I was brought up um, and, and I, don't think, I don't think this was a fault. I think some of these are just assumed um, things that you absorb for one thing or another. Uh, well, I, I can tell you why I absorb this is because I ha in fact, in my office, there's this little pamphlet that I filled out in 1980-something uh, with a little boy with a baseball bat <clears throat> on the front. And it was the track that kind of walked me through salvation. And so my choices were heaven and hell. Well, who's going to choose hell? But this is, this is how we talk about eternity, how, how, you know, when we think about the motivation for mission and things, well, we want to save people from hell in order to get them to heaven. We think that those are the two destinations, and that's what the Bible says about our eternal life. I've said this many times before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it. The pairing of heaven and hell in the scripture doesn't happen alongside of, one each, other, of each other one time. Rather, in the scriptures, there is, there's conversation all the time and the connection all the time between new heavens and new earth. It's heaven and earth, heaven and earth, not heaven and hell. And so when we think about eternity in this sense, this is a dichotomy that the scriptures don't even give us. That's not saying that there, I'm 100% a believer in judgment. I believe that God will judge, and the very, it's clear that the scriptures, God will judge the living and the dead, but Jesus is going to be the one that does that, and Jesus' wisdom and knowledge is, is way beyond mine. Okay, so there is going to be judgment. Um, but the scenario of heaven and hell as if those are the two destinations is not something that's actually presented to us in scripture. Instead, what is presented to us, and Jeremy, you can go to this next slide, is this image of the heavens and the earth. And this comes to us in Genesis 1.1, right? Here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you fast forward to the end to uh, Revelation 21 and 22, you have a new heavens and a new earth. Now in the beginning, the beginning of our story, it doesn't start with Genesis chapter three. If it started with Genesis chapter three, you would have heaven and earth separated. But it starts with Genesis one and two, where heaven and earth were created and they were created together. And heaven inhabited earth and earth inhabited heaven. And there wasn't a differentiation between the two because God was present in there, uh, in, in, in the both of them, and reigned in, in, in the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 3 comes along, sin enters the picture, and those things become separated. You can go to the next slide, Jeremy. And so we might think about it this way. The heavens and the earth. Okay, and so the heavens are the place where God reigns and rules. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is, uh, and, and Jesus, we know, is the king of the kingdom of heaven. He is the ruler of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we reside on earth, and there are, uh, with the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth, that's heaven coming to earth. 
And Jesus is the fullest representation of this, heaven coming to earth, but certainly throughout the Old Testament, we, we, we also get these theophanies where heaven and earth seem to open up and intersect again because that's the way it was always supposed to be in the first place. But in the person of Jesus, what we get is heaven coming to earth in the person of Christ. And so the kingdom of heaven, this is why Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of God, because he's trying to talk to us about what the reign of God looks like here on earth, because the desire for, uh, uh, for, for God is for it to be on earth as it is in heaven, right? This is why we pray this every week may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, um, when, we, when we think about eternal life, then, I, um, I just want to step this out for us a little bit. Um, because we're on earth, our next place is in heaven. And so our bodies die and they decay. And this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and, and, and throughout that chapter. But our bodies die and they decay. And there's this separation between our soul and our body that is temporary. Our soul, and Paul, oh, Paul talks about this in, in Philippians, in an offhanded sort of way, he says uh, that he would rather go to be with Christ. And so this, this heaven and this departure from the body is going to be with Christ. Now, what I, I, I need to say this too. So much of this is mystery. This isn't so linear and laid out. But there, is things that we can, there are things that we can know and things that we can put our confidence in, in how we think about these things. There is going, I, I mean, the, 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 the essence and, and, and the experience of these things are going to be more rich than I could ever explain to you. Uh, but there are things that we can know. And so when, when our bodies die, our souls go to heaven to be with God. Now, I don't know what being with God is like in that way, but I've had tastes and glimpses of what being with God looks like now and they're the most beautiful experiences of my life like I strongly desire the presence of Jesus um, and when those times come when grace comes for whatever reason where I experience the presence of Jesus they, they, they are undefinable unmistakable beautiful moments now if that's going to be what heaven is like in its fullness and that's going to be what kind of where my soul is all the time until the next phase of things. I'm fine with that. I don't need to know what exactly that looks like because I have known what it is to be with God here and I can't imagine what that looks like in fullness. But this isn't the end of the stage of the game either. And Jeremy, go back to the, the, the previous slide. Because heaven and earth are going to be one again, friends. And, and this is what I, I, I don't think... Or I wonder if we think about this enough. Um, because heaven and earth are going to be one again. And so we're not going to stay in a disembodied state. Rather, the scripture is very clear on this in terms of what our hope is, is that we're going to have resurrected bodies just like Jesus. These bodies are going to be, as Jesus says in this particular passage, like the angels. They're going to be indestructible. They're going to be new. It's not going to be like the Hulk or something indestructible. Let me clarify. But they're, they're going to be new bodies. They're going to be bodies like Jesus has. And so post-resurrection, what we see with Jesus will be so for us. As with Jesus, so with us. 
as with Jesus, so with us. That can be kind of our mantra as we think about what resurrection looks like, as with Jesus, so with us. Our bodies will be resurrected. They will, I don't know in whatever way, reconnect with the essence of who we are in our souls, because our soul in the Bible is just a way to, for us to describe and to understand the whole of who we are. And so those things will come together again for eternity for eternity. Now, that eternity is not disconnected somewhere far off in the sky somewhere. It's not you sitting on clouds. You might be wearing white. I don't know. Um, But it's not going to be you sitting on clouds and playing harps and singing for eternity because that would be some people's hell, right? Like, I, I don't want to sing forever. Brian, you might want to sing forever, but I don't want to sing forever. Um, and, 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 sorry, I digress there, maybe a little bit. Um, but it, it's not this disembodied somewhere often whatever, I don't, I don't know, whatever concept you want to use. But it's the coming together again of the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible is actually chocked full of images of heaven because of how God appears on earth. Friends, I, uh, this, this is, is um, inept at best, but maybe scratches the surface. If you want to get an idea about what heaven is like, look at the most glorious things that you can possibly see on this earth. And then multiply it by, in essence and beauty by, I mean, beyond your imagination. And that's not just talking about sunrises and sunsets and the beauty of nature and things. It's talking about love. It's talking about love between spouses. It's talking about um, the beautiful birth of children. It's talking about even the depth of love that we feel for our loved ones when we lose them. Those things that we experience that are beautiful and God-filled now are going to be more so than we can ever imagine when God reigns and sin is expunged from this planet and from our hearts and our minds and our souls, where we're going to be able to live on this earth with God's reign here and to will what God wills without this impediment of sin. Like, I can't... I can't even begin to imagine that. But we have tastes of it now. Tastes of it now that I think we can celebrate and that act as signposts for us to what will be. And so heaven has become this idea that some Christians don't even care about because they feel like it's, well, it's just, uh, it's out there. We don't really know what it's going to be like. Well, you kind of have a, a taste anyway. Let the Psalms speak to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see what God is doing now. You can taste and see what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what Jesus comes to bring us. We can taste and see and experience part of this now, although we will not know it and what it will be in, in full. So let me, let me just kind of wrap this this up, coming to our original question, because I do want to 
provide what comfort I can to those of us, those of you who've lost spouses. Uh, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, um, Revelation 21, 24 talks about there will be nations and there will be tribes. And this is, this is one of the reasons uh, I have no problem suggesting and believing that our earthly relationships do not come to an end in heaven or upon death. But they, uh, uh, again, as Brian's song sang, uh, song sang, sang song, song sang, um, they're caught up into the life of God. Nothing is lost on the breath of God. Nations and tribes, friends, are built on the backs of families that are built on the backs of husbands and wives who bear children, and they're built on community and friendships. The building block uh, of all of this, of marriage itself, is found not post-Genesis 3. It's not a result of the fall. It's a part of the design of the way God designed his kingdom, the heavens and the earth in the beginning, where two become one flesh. And so I have no problem hoping and being encouraged that um, uh, for Ruby and I, till death do us part, which is just a part of the common prayer, book of common prayer, not a part of the scripture. That comes in the 1600s, I think. I, I have no problem thinking that I will also enjoy the relationship with my wife and my family and my community and my friends, not just here, but eternally. Alfred Edersheim, uh, he, he writes one of the most... Um, substantive and highly regarded uh, backgrounds of the New Testament. And so uh, if, if my words aren't encouraging, this guy's older and more accepted than even I am. Um, so I'm hopeful that this encourages you. On this passage of scripture, he writes this, nor ought questions here to rise like dark clouds, such as the perpetuity of those relations, the ongoingness of those relations, which on earth are not only so precious to us, here's the key, but so holy. They're not just relationships. Marriage in and of itself is a way that God reveals God's self to us. It is holy. It is sacramental. So let nothing like dark clouds arise, such as the perpetuity of those relations which are on earth, not only so precious to us, but so holy. Assuredly, they will endure as all, I love this, as all that is of God and good. Only in them is earthly, only in them that is earthly will cease, or rather be transformed with the body. And so, friends, we, we get tastes of what will be transformed into something, um, in a sense, we can only imagine. And I think this is, I, this makes it a little more tangible, eternal life, heaven, new earth. This makes it a little bit more tangible to me a little more important for us to actually consider and to think about in the life that we live now, even before death. Because all around us, we get this sense that heaven is actually not quite as far off as we think. Uh, maybe as C.S. Lewis puts, it's uh, just beyond the wardrobe. And so Paul uh, writes this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he says, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard, 
nor the human heart conceived what God prepared and has prepared for those who love him. But listen to this. So we, we can't grasp it, right? We, and we won't be able to grasp it in its fullness. As Paul says elsewhere, it's seeing through a glass darkly. But here, this beautiful thing, but these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. Friends, uh, the life that God has for us now and the coming together of all things made new is beyond our imagination, but it's worth imagining. And it's worth shaping our hopes for the future in hope and not fear because our future is in the hands of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Amen just like to invite us into a time of prayer before and as we get ready for the table here. And I just want to provide some space of quiet. There's an image or a word that comes to mind. Just be attentive to how the Holy Spirit might speak to you because the Spirit reveals to us even the deep things of God. Lord, we we long uh, for this day of Christ's return where the heavens and the earth are made one again under the reign of Jesus, where all things are made new, where things that are broken are restored, when we receive again what has been lost, Lord, we long for that day. With John the Revelator, we we pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, because this earth needs to be made right. Come, Lord Jesus, because so many of us that are living on this earth experience great deals of pain and loss. Come, Lord Jesus, because this world is tired and needs renewed. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, for my friends, my brothers and sisters who have lost loved ones in this past year and a half, just pray for your peace and your mercy for them. I pray that they would find their lives and the lives of their loved ones in you. Lord, and and the truth that we sung of earlier, that nothing is lost on, on, on your breath. 
would also be true for them. Lord, that lives um, and loved ones, Lord, they're not lost, but they are held by you as are us who, who continue to remain in this earthly body. Would you join me in praying this on heaven and earth prayer as Jesus taught us to pray as we prepare for communion this morning? Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.